Today's scripture is from John 12, 1 through 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charged of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. In 2012, there was a 19-year-old man from Washington State. His name was Dakota Guerin. And he was charged with stealing a rare coin collection that was estimated at $100,000. He had been doing part-time work in this home uh, for this woman. And when he got done with the work, he left. And the woman, at some point, realized that her coin collection was gone. So she reported to the police. They questioned this man, Garen. He said, I didn't do it. He denied it. There's no evidence. But then uh, soon after he started spending these coins at face value. So they they started doing some some checking and and gathering of what had happened. So he and his girlfriend uh, paid for movie tickets using these quarters that were estimated to be between worth $5 and $68 a piece. And then later, uh, they... (laughs) They bought some local pizza. They went out, I guess, after the movie to get some pizza and used these rare coins, including a Liberty quarter that was estimated to be worth about $18,000. So the man gets charged with first-degree theft. He gets thrown in jail with a bond set at $40,000, which if the coin collection belonged to him would be no problem. It's a story. It's a, it's a story that, that highlights the importance of ascribing the right value and the right worth to things. It's a story on a, you know, on, on a, on a small scale that really when you, when, you, when you blow it up on a bigger picture is really describing what worship is. Because worship is, is ascribing worth or ascribing value to things. And then your actions and your behaviors following. So, for example, and you may not realize you do this. You may not consciously think about this every day, but you are constantly ascribing worth to things to decide where to spend your time and resources. You may, as a family, you may ascribe value or worth to your child being in a soccer league so that you can decide whether or not you're going to spend your time that way. You may ascribe worth or value to a 
family vacation and decide, therefore, based on the worth of it, am I going to spend my money there? We're constantly doing it. We're constantly ascribing worth and value to things. And that's what worship is. Worship is ascribing worth. You know, we, we use it as a religious term, but it's, it's very much a term that describes what every person, whether you're here a, a believer in Christ or not, it's what we do every day. We ascribe value. We ascribe worth. And that's what worship is. And this story that we see here, this beautiful story of Mary anointing Jesus' feet is all about ascribing value and ascribing worth and therefore the worship that follows. And it answers the question, what are, what are the marks of true worship? And to answer that, we're going to look at the expression of worship, the heart of worship, and the supremacy of worship. Let's start with the expression. Mary's gift here to Jesus is lavish. It's over the top. Look at verse three. It says, she took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Now there's two pressing questions after reading verse three. One, how extravagant was this gift? And number two, why did Mary do it? Now, let's, let's start with the extravagance. How extravagant was it? Well, down in verse five, Judas says that it could have been sold for 300 denarii. Now, a denarius was a, a day's worth of work for a day laborer. It was a, a, a day's wage. So when you take into account Sabbath and holidays, a 300 denarii is equal or equivalent to a year's worth of wage for a day laborer. You say, well, how much is that today? So if we take uh, minimum wage, being roughly $8 an hour, a day's wage or a denarius of $8 an hour would be what, $64 per day? 300 denarii would be $19,000. Mary pours out $19,000 worth of ointment in a couple of minutes simply to honor and cherish Jesus. I just want to pause. Can we just pause and let that set in? $19,000 worth of ointment. In a couple of minutes, she pours out at Jesus' feet. Now, if you have a pulse and you're alive, this morning. This should beg a lot of questions. A lot of them. Two of the central prominent questions are, why did Mary do this? And what does it mean? So why did she do it? Well, it says down in verse seven, look what Jesus says. Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Verse seven can also read, leave her alone. She intended to keep it for the day of my burial. You know, embalming spices were common in the first century. It would take what Mary did here, this kind of ointment or these embalming spices, and they would anoint a body for the grave. So what Mary was doing here was preparing Jesus' body for the grave. Simply to cherish and to honor him. Now, little did she know that in six days, he would be put in a grave. You realize in the Gospel of John, where chapter 12 has 21 chapters, 
these last chapters we'll be going through happened over six days. So she's preparing his body for burial, not knowing that in six days he will be put in a tomb. Now, how do the disciples respond to this? Wow, what an amazing act of worship, right? Uh, what an amazing picture of pure adoration. No, Judas, one of Jesus' disciples says, what a waste, what an absolute waste of money. And, and you can be very, we can assume that Judas wasn't the only disciple who thought this. Right? What a waste of money. And this is, this is accentuated when you understand the town of Bethany where this is happening. This was a poor town. Bethany, the word actually means house of the poor. There were plenty of utilitarian and pragmatic purposes and uses of money in this kind of town that was poor. And so the disciples say, this is an absolute waste of money. Now, let me ask the next question. Then what in the world does this mean for today? Mary did it to prepare Jesus' body for burial. The disciples say, what a waste. What's this mean? Well, I want to say it's no different than today. What you see happening here and the response of the disciples is no different than today because there are expressions of worship that happen today that plenty of people in the church, outside the church, the world say, what an absolute waste. Let me give you a couple examples. Money is tight. You're barely able to pay your bills. You're barely able to put food on the table. But you continue to tithe 10% to the church. You continue to support a missionary. And one of your friends or someone hears this and knows this and says to you, what a waste. What an unwise use of money that you would pour it out like that when you have needs of your own. I'll give you another example. You're single, you've chosen to be celibate, or you're married, and you've chosen to be faithful to your spouse, and a friend or the world looks at you, I would say especially if you're single, and says, what a waste. You could be enjoying your pleasures, sexual pleasures. You could be enjoying your freedom. You could be having fun. What a waste. What a wasteful expression of worship. Or let me give you another. You get a college degree, and then you decide to go into ministry. Or you decide to go to work for a nonprofit. And your friends or somebody or a parent says, what a waste. What a waste of your intellect. What a waste of your training. I was an engineer. I'm not just saying this hypothetically. <laughs> what a waste. What a waste of earning potential. Listen, nothing is wasted if it is poured out on Jesus. Nothing is wasted that is poured out on Jesus. Or let me say it another way. No gift can be too precious 
that shows gratitude for what Jesus has done. No gift can be too precious that shows gratitude for what Jesus has done. Mary pours out this gift on Jesus, $19,000 of ointment, simply to cherish him, simply to honor him, prepare his body for burial. Paul picks this up in Romans 12, verse one. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. A living sacrifice, that means a life, a life that is poured out in every conceivable way for the sake of Jesus. The world doesn't understand that. It's an expression of worship that is in a different language. And Paul even picks up on this in, in, in Romans 12 too. The next verse, he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You know what Paul's saying? Listen, when you pour your life out as a living sacrifice, the world is not gonna understand it. The world's not gonna agree with it. You're gonna hear, what a waste. Paul says, no, but, but you, you're not conformed to the world. You've been transformed such that an expression of worship like this is, is, is not a waste. It's beautiful when it's poured out at the feet of Jesus and for his sake. No gift can be too precious or too lavish that shows gratitude for what Jesus has done. Now, where does such a lavish gift originate? Right, it's, not, it's not enough just to talk about the expression of worship. That's outward. The question is, what motivated Mary to do something like this, something so beautiful and so expensive for Jesus. What motivated her? And this is where we see in this story the absolute contrast between Judas and Mary. It couldn't be any more stark. Because what you see with Judas is a man who is keeping up with outward appearances, the outward appearances of an insider, a disciple of Jesus, but a man whose heart is like that of an outsider who's not a disciple of Jesus. Notice what, what Judas says. Look at verse five. What he says sounds very right, very righteous. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? See, on the surface, it sounds like Judas has this amazing heart for the poor, that his heart is bleeding for the least of these, for the down and out. Now, John, the gospel writer, gives some commentary at this point, doesn't he? He says, no, no, Judas really didn't care for the poor. He didn't care for the poor. He was a thief. See, Judas was the treasurer of this ragtag bunch of disciples. He was the keeper of the money bag. And the money bag was used for really two purposes, to, uh, to supply the needs of the disciples as they went about on their mission and their journey, and to help the poor. John says that Judas would oftentimes put his money in the, or his hand in the sack and pull money. He was a thief. He was selfish. He was out for his own gain. He was greedy. Now, let me just make a point here. When you're, when you're or an observation, when you read through the gospel of John, you read comments like this about Judas. It's not the only place that he, you read comments about how he was ultimately a betrayer. And you can read those comments and think that Judas was like this, kind of this fringe disciple. He was always the one that was kind of hanging out there and the other guys were kind of suspicious of Judas. You know, kind of thinking something's just not quite right with Judas. You know, always just kind of, 
And that couldn't be further from the truth. Because one chapter later in John 13, in the Last Supper, Jesus looks at all his disciples and says, one of you is gonna betray me. And what do the disciples do? Ah, yeah, we all thought it was Judas. No, the disciples look around at each other and go, who is it? They had no clue, why? Because Judas was doing an amazing job at keeping the outward appearances up to speed, so to speak. You see, hypocrisy is a discrepancy between outward appearances and the inward affections of the heart. And so Judas, by his outward appearances, was a worshiper of Christ. By the inward affections of his heart, he was a worshiper of self. He was a, a hypocrite. And what we see here is that worship ultimately is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of those deep inward affections of the heart that lead to outward appearances and actions. Now, Mary stands in absolute contrast to Judas, doesn't she? Mary isn't trying to keep up outward appearances. In fact, what she does is quite scandalous. She lets her hair down in public, in a room with a bunch of men and wipes Jesus' feet with it. That was scandalous in that day. On top of that, she does what many of the disciples, at least Judas, but probably others, says is wasteful. And so her, her inward affections for Jesus are so strong that she does what is both scandalous and, and seemingly wasteful. And she doesn't care. She doesn't care because her heart is gripped by Jesus and her actions are a response. I want you to see this. Look at verse three again. It says, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment and anointed Jesus' feet. Therefore indicates that she is doing this in response to something. She's responding. What's she responding to? Verse one, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. See, all of what has happened leading up to this is coming in response to the resurrection of Lazarus. Mary has this beautiful expression of worship, pours out this beautiful expensive ointment on Jesus. What? In response to the resurrection of Lazarus. Her expression of worship doesn't come before resurrection. It comes after. And after Lazarus was raised from the dead, between that point in John 11 and where we're at here in John 12, lots happens. The chief priests, the Pharisees say, we're, we are gonna kill Jesus. We're gonna arrest him. Jesus has to flee. And then we learn in verse one that what time is it? It's Passover time, which means that annual festival. Everyone's pouring back into Jerusalem. Everyone's coming back. And they're coming back in saying, I wonder if Jesus is gonna show up. And this story takes place about almost two miles outside of Jerusalem. Jesus is coming back, but he stops in Bethany. And so Jesus is, he's approaching his death. And we see that Mary here, as she sees what's happening and following the raising of her brother from the dead, now she responds with this beautiful 
expression of worship. I want you to see, I want you to note the transformation that happens in Mary here. Back in chapter 11, before Lazarus is raised from the dead, what does Mary say to Jesus? She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You see, Mary at that point, along with Martha, are fixated on the tragedy. Their brother got sick and then he died. They're fixated on the tragedy and she's playing the what if game. If only Jesus, you had been here. Stuck on what Jesus could have done. Now, that is a snapshot of what we've seen throughout our study of the Gospel of John. Because what we've seen so far in the Gospel of John is people responding in some way to Jesus, but their responses have been their desire for a miracle worker. And so they're looking for Jesus to perform a miracle. Why? To to give them what they want, to help solve a problem. And every time that belief is expressed that way into Jesus as a miracle worker, it's condemned. John, it's it's condemned because the belief is is, is really, it's really a self-worship about what can Jesus do for me. And that's where Mary, pre-resurrection of Lazarus, finds herself. If Jesus, if you would have been here, you could have done something about it. But then flip over. After Lazarus is raised from the dead. See, now you have Mary in a very different place. In John's gospel, Jesus' miracles are talked about as signs, not just raw displays of power to say what Jesus can do for you. That's not the purpose. Jesus doesn't do a miracle and say, hey, look what I can do for you. No, John says there's signs. There's signs of who Jesus is. And so what we see with Mary is she goes from Worshiping Jesus, it says she fell at his feet in chapter 11 before Lazarus was raised. I mean, she fell at his feet, but she was worshiping Jesus for what he could have done. Now you see her at Jesus' feet, worshiping Jesus for what? Not what he could have done or what he's doing, but who he is. And that's the heart of worship. Worship is ultimately a response to a person, not an event or a circumstance, you say, well, but wait a minute. Don't we worship Jesus because of what he did for us on the cross? And when he rose, yes, but why did Jesus die on the cross? Was it just to forgive you of sin so that you could go on living your life how you want and enjoy pleasures with no consequence? No, it was to be with you. That's why he did that, was to be with you. And what we see here is that Mary is responding to now not what Jesus has done for her in Lazarus, but who he is. If you would have asked Mary before her brother was raised from the dead in chapter 11, Mary, what would make you happy? You know what her response would have been. Just give me my brother back. That was her plea. Now she has her brother back in her house. You ask Mary now, According to this story, Mary, what would make you happy? It's not, just let me be with my brother. Oh, she loved her brother. But no, now it's, let me sit at Jesus' feet and pour out $19,000 of ointment on him. Why? Because she's worshiping him, who he is, his identity. There's no other way to explain her, explain her lavish gift than to to realize that Mary's heart has been gripped not just by what Jesus has done or will do, but who he is, his identity. And that's at the heart of worship. 
and what it is. So we've looked at the, the expression of worship, which flows out of a, a heart of worship. And finally, let's look at the supremacy of worship. Jesus closes the story with a really, it's just an odd closing. Let's just be honest. It's a, it's a strange closing to the story. And, and it, it demands some explanation. Verse eight, Jesus says, for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now, what does Jesus mean by this? Well, first of all, note that he's responding to what Judas has said, right? Judas has said, I wish you would have sold, or we could have sold that ointment and used $19,000 to help the poor. So Jesus is responding to that. What's he saying? Is he saying, don't help the poor? No, we'll get to that. What he's saying is that ultimately, there is no help for the poor unless I go to the cross and die. That's what he's saying. That ultimately, Jesus' death and resurrection is what will eliminate poverty. <laughs> that ultimately, Jesus' death and resurrection is what will be the answer for the poor. Because the poor, without Jesus, are not just poor in this life, but poor in the life to come. Jesus says, you'll always have the poor with you. And isn't that true? 2,000 years later, you won't always have me. My death and resurrection is paramount because my death and resurrection is the solution for not just the poor, but everything that's wrong in our world. And so this gift, this ointment was absolutely appropriate because of the supremacy of, of Jesus and the worship of him. I, I remember the um, first time I flew on a plane and, uh, you know, first time you fly, like every, you're just listening to everything, you're taking everything in. And, and so it was the first time I heard the stewardess get up and give the safety instructions. And I remember sitting there and, you know, she's like, pull out the, the, the thing in front of you, you know, which the first time you're like, yes, okay. You know, after a couple of flights, you're like, where's my magazine, right? First time, so I'm, I'm pulling out, I'm listening. And then she says that thing that you always hear, right? If there's a sudden loss in cabin pressure, which I love the political correctness of that, that means that if this plane is about to crash, right? If the fuselage rips off, right? Sudden, sudden loss of cabin pressure, okay? Oxygen mass will drop down in front of you. And then what do they say? Make sure, your make sure to put the oxygen mask on your child before you put yours on. The first time I heard that, I was like, wait a minute. That doesn't seem, that seems like wrong. Or no, no, let me flip that around. I think I said it wrong. I'm watching the faces. You're like, no, that's right. Back the train up, start it again. Oxygen mask dropped down, right? Put your oxygen mask on before you put your child's mask on. And I remember hearing that going, that just seems selfish. You kidding me? I'm putting my kid's mask on first. Why do they say that? Because <laughs> you're not much help to your kid if you're passed out because you don't have oxygen. In other words, your child is going to need help. Your child needs you. So put your mask on first so that then you can help your children. Putting your mask on first is a priority number one. In, a, in this moment, in Bethany, 
the town of Bethany, house of the poor, poverty everywhere, street beggars, everyone, it's a poor place. Jesus is saying, my impending death is of paramount importance, more so than the poor that are sitting here in front of you. Why? (laughs) Because if I don't go to the cross, ultimately they have no help. Now, why is that the case? During the 1990s, and this was after decades of very mixed results, the, uh, the, world, the world Bank, okay, which is, which is basically uh, the public sector, was the public sector that was responsible for alleviating poverty in low-income countries. They had very mixed results. And so they, they actually went ahead and asked a very simple question to 60,000 poor people in low-income countries. And the question was this, what is poverty? to 60,000 poor people. Then they asked that same question to upper and middle, middle and upper class people in wealthy countries. And the results were, were shocking because when they asked to a poor person, what is poverty? They did get an acknowledgement of lack of material things. But what they heard over and over amongst poor people is this. They typically talked in terms of shame, inferiority, powerlessness, humiliation, fear, hopelessness, depression, social isolation, and voicelessness. When they asked middle to upper income people that same question, across the board, the answer they got was lack of material things. You see, there's no amount of money. There's no no amount of material provision that can get rid of shame, inferiority, humiliation, fear, isolation, depression. Only Jesus Christ can take that away. And that's why Jesus says, Worship of me is of paramount importance and me getting to the cross is of paramount importance because only then will anybody be helped, let alone the poor. So you might say, does that mean that the supremacy of worship, right? and what Jesus is saying here, that, that Jesus' worship is, is of, of supreme importance, even over or before or priority to to helping people who are weak and poor? Does it mean that we're not to help the poor? No. Here's what Jesus is saying. It's wrong to help the poor and ignore Jesus, and vice versa. It's wrong to worship Jesus and ignore the poor because Jesus brings this integration together in Matthew chapter 25 when he says this, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Jesus makes it very clear, it's not either or. He says, when you do help 
the poor, give someone a meal. When you do help someone who's sick and take care of them, when you help someone who's in prison or just coming out of prison, or someone maybe not in prison but is dealing with the consequences of their sin, when you help the least of these, Jesus says, you are doing it to me. You are pouring out a $19,000 bottle of ointment on me when you help the least of these. There's the connection. See, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father now. He's not with us. But Jesus says, what you saw Mary do, you do. When you pour out your help and your resources on someone that needs help. Now, the integration of this I mean, we could go off on lots of tangents here on on social gospel and social activism. And what I want you to see here is that Jesus doesn't doesn't allow those two things to be pulled apart. You either worship Jesus or you do social activism. Jesus says, no, there is nowhere in the Bible that allows that to happen. Those things are integrated. And that integration is a matter of the heart, right? Listen, you know how much joy it is to help someone. I, I say, well, most of the time. Sometimes people don't want your help, do they? Sometimes you help people and they show no gratitude. But for the most part, you understand the joy that you feel when you help someone. How much more joy is there to pour out an expensive and lavish gift on Jesus Christ himself by helping someone? To make that connection that I'm helping this person and I am worshiping Jesus doing it. And I am pouring out something beautiful on Jesus as I do it in adoration and in gratitude. What are the marks of true worship? Lavish expressions that flow out of a a heart that is gripped by Jesus, that understands that Jesus is of absolute paramount and the worship of him is paramount because without him, nobody's helped. Now, I say all this, this is a sermon where you you get to the end of of something like this and and you can either feel one of two things. Wow, I'm doing great. I don't think anybody in the room is probably feeling that right now. Wow, I'm pouring out $19,000 bottles of ointment all the time. Yeah, I'm just doing wonderful. No, I, I imagine this is the kind of sermon and the kind of display by Mary that oftentimes brings on guilt. Wow just not doing enough, not helping enough people. I'm, I'm convicted of my hypocrisy, my outward appearances and the affections of my heart. I, I'm just convicted of the mess that I'm in and my worship just seems so lacking. I would say most people are there. And that's why this passage points to what? points to the burial of Jesus. That's why Mary did it. This is pointing to the death and resurrection of Jesus, which was Jesus pouring out infinitely more than a $19,000 bottle of ointment for you, for us, for his church. That he lavishly expended himself every last drop of his blood that's of infinite value to save us. And not only to save you, but to intercede for you. So that your response to that is worship, but your worship will always be imperfect. And it will be up and down. And it's in those moments 
that it's helpful to understand this. And, I, and I'm going to read a, a section um, from Brian Chappell's book, Unlimited Grace, because he captures here the heart of worship and the desire to, to pour out on Jesus beauty, but the realization that we do it imperfectly. And how do you deal with that? Listen, once upon a time, there was a king who looked from his palace window and saw one of his children collecting flowers in a distant field. The king watched as the child collected the flowers into a bouquet and wrapped it with a royal ribbon of royal colors. And the king smiled because the ribbon indicated that the flowers were being collected as a gift for his own pleasure. Then the king noticed that the child, because he was a child, gathered not only flowers, from time to time, the child also added some weeds from the field and some ivy from the border of the woods and some thistle from the unmown banks of ditches. To help his laboring child, the king gave a mission to his oldest son who sat at his right hand. The king said to the eldest son, go to my garden and pick from the flowers that are grown there. Then when your sibling comes to my throne room with his gift, remove all that is unfit for my palace from his bouquet. Make it fit by putting in its place the flowers that I have grown. The elder brother did exactly as his father had instructed. When the younger child came to the throne room, his brother, this is beautiful. His brother removed the weeds, the ivy, and the thistle, substituting all with flowers from the king's garden. Then the firstborn son rewrapped the royal ribbon around the bouquet so that his sibling could present his gift to the king. With a beaming smile, the younger child entered the throne room, presented the gift and said, here, my father, is a beautiful bouquet that I have prepared for you. Only later would he understand that his gift had been made acceptable by the gracious provision of his father. Listen, the only reason that your worship to Jesus is acceptable or your worship to the Father is acceptable is because Jesus makes it acceptable and made it acceptable by his death and resurrection. And he's constantly interceding for you. So that as you bring your worship, your expressions of worship to, to Jesus through helping others, all these expressions of worship that are imperfect, you have Jesus Christ, the righteous one who died for you, who rose for you, who takes those expressions of worship and makes them perfect in the presence of his Father. Now that brings joy. And that is the kind of message of grace in the gospel that motivates you to want to pour out all the more of your life as a living sacrifice to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, what a beautiful story. What a beautiful picture of worship that we see here with Mary. Father, as we contemplate our own worship, our expressions of worship and our heart behind it, and, and as we're reminded of our own hypocrisy and our appearances not matching up with our affections, would you remind us of the grace of the gospel? that ultimately this story points to your burial, Jesus, your death, your resurrection, 
that Jesus, you poured out everything of infinite value. Every drop of your blood was poured out on our behalf that our feeble expressions of worship would be made perfect in your sight. Fathers, we come to the table now and enjoy the Lord's Supper, this gift from you, this expensive, lavish gift from you to us. Would we receive it and be renewed and be reminded of where our hope comes from, where our joy comes from, and ultimately the reality and the truth that Jesus, you intercede for us and make our worship acceptable. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.